Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Our gold standard of incorporating neuroscience into making sense of humans at their worst moments is relying on neuroscience that was derived from knowledge in 1840. We haven't incorporated anything new since then. And this is appalling. Hello, welcome to Sir Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. But to begin today uh, by making again a request I made uh, a, a couple shows ago, which is I'm trying to get here at, at the end of my first draft of my book, uh, which is this book, is, if you've been listening, which is about political identity and polarization and the way the two coalitions are sorting and how that is changing various institutions in American politics. If there's someone you think I should talk to for that on the show, if there's someone you would like to hear me discuss this with, somebody who you think is making polarization worse, or you think has a way of making it better, or has a perspective or a research line on it that, that I should be considering, you know, is in a discipline um, that I don't talk to enough, whatever it might be, I'd love those ideas. Um, I want to make sure that I'm casting the net as widely as I can and getting uh, the perspectives that I, I should be into it. Uh, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. And I'd be grateful for your for your help and your wisdom. All right. I've been very excited about the show today. My guest is Robert Sapolsky, who is a neuroscientist at Stanford and just like a genius, just a genius. Uh, if you read his work or have listened to his lectures, he's the author of a bunch of really beloved books. Um, the most recent one is Behave. But before that, he wrote what is, I think, the seminal text on anxiety, a book called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. I talk a bit about this in the show, but I picked this book up because I have anxiety. I struggle with that, um, and I, I want to understand it better. But it's really in the back half of the book where he began talking about anxiety and poverty and anxiety and society that I, I was on a plane reading this, and I just... You sometimes read a book, and you just get excited. Like, these are just great, important ideas. And so immediately when I, I landed, I, I got in touch with him and asked him to come on the show. The reason I think this is an important conversation, and in fact, one of the more important ones we've had on the show, is that politics and policy making, it needs to begin from a realistic view of human nature. And it so often doesn't. I mean, it so often comes from values, from ideology, from interests, but not from a, an understanding of how human beings work. They were laddering up to a, an understanding of how to build a society in, in which they can thrive. You hear in politics all the time, it drives me crazy. You hear all the time, oh, I don't want equality of outcome. I want equality of opportunity. As if equality of opportunity is some get-out-of-jail-free card for social policy. As if equality of opportunity is something somehow easy to achieve. Anybody who has thought seriously or studied the contributors of opportunity knows that is not true. Equality of opportunity is such, a, it is such an ambitious goal that there is absolutely no chance we will ever reach it. 
but but striving for it, which is difficult, which would require policy far more radical than anything we have today. Striving for it is something that, that I think is certainly worth doing. And if you're thinking about equality of opportunity, clearly part of that opportunity, part of what, what gives us the, the ability to compete with each other equally is the, the, the mental hardware, software, is the temperament we bring to life. It's not just where we go to school or what community we grow up in. It's what kind of impulse control do we have? Do we have the energy to make difficult decisions that require delaying gratification? Um, how much short-term memory are, are we holding? What is our executive function like? How much trauma is there in our backgrounds? What is our confidence in our ability to solve problems? Sapolsky, as I mentioned, he's a neuroscientist. His background is studying primates, um, which he, he led us up into studying humans. And he has a, a way of thinking about this and a way of thinking about stress and anxiety and pressure, which uh, oftentimes comes out of poverty and what that does to those parts of us that is really, really important. Listen to this conversation. And, and while you're listening to it, I, I want you to try to think about something. Think about how you think and plan and react to hard information when you're tired, when you're underslept, when you're in really bad traffic, when nothing is going right. Think about in this conversation, certainly this is what I was thinking about. Are you you? Are you like the you you would explain yourself to be in a diary or in a letter to, to, to someone you love or who you want to love you? Or are you only the you of this particular context? How different would you be if the context changed radically? And so the chemicals in your brain and the things your brain had learned about the way it interacts with the world had also changed radically. I think this is an important conversation. I think it is the beginning of a lot of conversations like this one that I want to have, but it is worth it. Here is Robert Sapolsky. Robert Sapolsky, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. So let me begin with a basic question. What is stress and why is it bad for us? What is stress? It depends on what species we're talking about. If you're your average mammal out there, what stress is about is some short-term physical crisis. Somebody's very intent on eating you, or you're very intent on running fast enough to eat someone else. Short-term physical crisis where it's either over with within a couple of minutes or you're over with. And in those cases, you turn on the classic mammalian stress response, your heart rate increases, your blood pressure, a whole bunch of other changes we can talk about. When you get to humans, though, uh, stress can be very different. Yes, a stressor could be you're running for your life from a lion, but a stressor could also be a 30-year mortgage or thinking about your you know, retirement or thinking about the planet your grandkids are going to inherit or something that is just definedly human, which is chronic psychological stress. And when it comes to humans, we are capable of turning on the exact same stress response as an animal running for its life when we're thinking about global warming. Why do we think that is? Why does it use the same pathways as physical, existential, immediate stress to worry about a public speaking presentation I have to give next week? Well, I think we see a continuum. There's the obvious logic of turn on the stress response. Some lion has just ripped your stomach open. Um, there's an obvious stress response, obvious logic, turn on the stress response. Ooh, here comes a lion. There can be a logical stress response. Ooh, we're in the sort of place that lions lurk this time of day. 
there could be an obvious logical anticipatory stress response. Ooh, the locusts have come. We're going to be starving in a couple of months. You see a transition in other species into a capacity to not just have reactive stress responses, but anticipatory ones. And for most species out there, anticipatory is pretty short term. It's not anticipating 30 years of paying a mortgage. It's not anticipating the final exam that's coming in two months. All we have done is taken that evolutionary logic of being capable of some degree of anticipatory stress responses, and we've done crazy human stuff with it of just abstracting it over space and time, and suddenly you're turning on stress responses for things a thousand years in the future or a thousand years in the past or for a fictional character in a book or somebody on the other side of the planet who you'll never meet. And you're then in very human-specific domains. And so if you work or live under long-term conditions of chronic stress, what, it, what does that do to us mentally and physically? Lousy stuff. And here we go back to that dichotomy between the wonderful logic of the short-term stress response while you're running for your life and the damaging illogic of the chronic stress response when it's turned on for psychological reasons. What are you doing short-term when you're running for your life? You increase heart rate, you increase breathing rate, you dump stored energy into your bloodstream to power your muscles, you shut off everything that's not essential in your body, you shut off growth and digestion and reproduction and stuff like that. You leave your body prone towards an inflammatory state in case you're about to be injured. All of this makes wonderful sense if you're being stressed for three minutes of a physical insult. If you're stressed for 30 years instead or stressed day after day in traffic, whatever, you're sitting there in traffic and absolutely nothing useful is coming from the fact that you're doing the exact same thing with your body. Ooh, you're sitting in traffic and you increase your heart rate. You divert glucose to your thigh muscles so you could run for your life. You shut down ovulation. You stop repairing tissue. You get into an inflammatory state, all of which makes perfect sense when you're running from a lion, all of which is a disaster when you do it chronically for nonsense psychological reasons. I mean, no matter how bad traffic is, or no matter how poorly your boss is treating you or whatever, you're probably not going to get disemboweled in the savanna and left as just like a pile of bleached bones. You know, I just moved to the Bay Area and the traffic, though, is really bad. Yeah, actually here it, it does involve the occasional <laughs> sort of killing of that sort, but still, it's rare. It's rare by mammalian standards. So uh, I want to lay my cards on the table here a bit. So I'm a political journalist, and I did not pick up your book on this. On, under those terms. I struggle a lot with anxiety, particularly over the past five-ish years. And I read the book, or I picked up the book, because I wanted to understand what was happening in my body better. And what I took from the book, I actually read it on a plane ride. And it was in, this, in the back half that I felt like you were offering a theory of social stress that was actually of incredible value to my work as a political journalist, in some way of more value than just knowing that all of my worrying was, was being bad for me on a day-to-day -day basis. So I, I wanted to move up to this idea of stress as an unequally but importantly applied force across our society. And I thought the, the place to begin was you have an interesting 
insight late in the book where you've done a lot of work with primates. And you say that in some ways, primate society is a lot simpler than human society, that what we've invented in human society is poverty, which is a way of applying social stress. It's much more diabolical than anything you've seen in your primate studies. Can you talk a little bit about those differences? Yeah. Okay. The large subject that you're alluding to is lots of social organisms out there. Uh, Most primates and us have hierarchies, status hierarchies, dominance hierarchies, things of that sort. And a general theme is if being at the bottom of your hierarchy involves taking a lot of grief, individuals dumping on you if they're in a bad mood, you not having much social support, things that are relevant to every primate out there, the profile you see is your body's in a chronic state of mildly activating the stress response. And you're being set up for all the classic stress-related diseases, atherosclerosis, hypertension, you know, adult-onset diabetes is worsened by stress, gastrointestinal problems, etc., etc. You look closely at other primates, though, and you see all these interesting qualifiers, like being a low-ranking baboon is not as associated with a bad health outcome if you have friends. What's a friend for a baboon? Somebody you sit and groom with, somebody you sit in contact with, somebody who's got your back in a fight, and that sort of thing. Modulated by that. It's modulated by if it's a troop whose hierarchy is not quite as vicious as in other troops. In other words, it's not just your rank, it's the social system in which the rank is occurring. Okay, so hooray, all this non-human primate subtlety. And then you look at the human equivalent which we are not a classically hierarchical species in the sense of like chickens having pecking orders, but we have one hell of a dominating hierarchical thing that we invented 10, 12,000 years ago or so, which is socioeconomic status and differences in it. And what you see is poverty is associated with virtually all of the bad health outcomes associated with chronic stress. And we can go into the nuts and bolts of that in more detail. But the most striking thing about it is you see that SES, socioeconomic status, SES health relationship in sweaty capitalist United States, in socialized medicine, Scandinavia and Canada and egalitarian societies and in society after society, Poverty, no matter how severe or how benign it might be, poverty is associated with with worse health. In other words, amid all those subtleties in non-human primates, oh, it depends on your personal buffers and your personal experience of your rank and what the nature is of the culture of your baboon troop, etc., etc. When you get to humans, poverty is this psychological sledgehammer like nothing that the primate world has ever invented. So I think the obvious counter-argument to this, the thing people think when they hear it, is isn't the role of poverty in worsening people's health outcomes strictly material? You don't have health insurance, perhaps, although not in some of these countries you're talking about. You don't have access to as good food. Maybe you're working in a more dangerous job. Why don't you think that the effect of poverty on health is simply the effect of money on being able to buy both better medication and a healthier lifestyle? Great. This this materialist explanation is a significant part of the story. And it probably has something to do with why the 
health SES gradient is a whole lot steeper in the United States than it is in Sweden, for example, and why it's the steepest of anywhere in the world in the United States. As you said, it can't be due to health care access because you see a gradient in countries with universal health care. You look at lifestyle risk factors, lifestyle protective factors. Oh, bummer, they put in a toxic waste dump next door. Maybe I'll get a fancy health club membership or take a vacation. This is not an option for the poor. But when you look at the risk factors and the protective factors and lifestyle, it only explains about a third of the variability. Where most of the variability winds up being explained is in the role of stress. Okay, let's unpack that a little bit. The first thing that you see, and this is wonderful work from a colleague, Nancy Adler, at University of California, San Francisco, ask a person how they're doing. When you compare yourself to other people in the world, how are you doing? In fact, let's make this a hard-nosed scientific study. Here's a picture of a ladder with 10 rungs. When you compare yourself to other people, what rung do you put yourself on? In other words, what you're asking for is somebody's subjective sense of social status. And it turns out your objective SES, your income, many of those measures, your objective SES is no better of a predictor of your health than is your subjective SES. In other words, it's not being poor, it's feeling poor. And this winds up being a big statistical mediator of this relationship. So that would imply that the way in which poverty is acting is psychological. I mean, we've been talking about it through stress, but 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 it's relative. It's a feeling of where you rank compared to other people in your society. It's that and it's additional variables. Because the next piece of the story is wonderful work from this epidemiologist Richard Wilkinson um, in the UK who shows that it's not so much being poor. It's not so much feeling poor. It's feeling poor surrounded by plenty. It's inequality. And what he shows is after controlling for absolute income, the extent of inequality in society is a huge predictor of health. More inequality, everybody's health is worse all the way up and down the ladder. Those on the bottom suffer from it the most. But this winds up being a very important statistical mediator of the, it's not just being poor, it's feeling poor, it's feeling poor in a place where your nose is being rubbed in it all the time. Uh, On that last point, how much do you think it's related to the stories we tell each other and ourselves about the causation of poverty? You have an interesting discussion in the book about how one of the worst things that can happen for stress is you believe you have control over something you don't have control over. Or you believe you don't have control over something that you do. So you talk about how the kindest thing we often say to somebody is there was nothing you could do. But in particularly in America, but to some degree in a lot of other countries as well, we tell a real individualized story about poverty. That if you are poor, it is your fault that you have failed compared to all these other people. You should have been getting up earlier. You should have made different decisions when you were a kid. You should have never, you know, done that dumb thing when you were 19 and you ended up in jail for a couple of years. How much is that feeling that poverty is a personal failing and that your deprivation amidst the plenty is your fault? How much do you think that that is a player here? Um, I think that's a big piece of it, because if you're growing up in a society where the, the myth is that any person could grow up to be a 
billionaire, real estate shyster or, and or president. If you're growing up in that sort of setting and you don't wind up that way, you know whose fault it is. I mean, when it comes to the psychology of stress, sort of the building blocks are for the same external stressor, we feel worse we're more likely to turn on a stress response. We're more at risk for stress-related diseases if we feel like we have no control, no predictability, no outlets, lacking social support. Okay, so what comes out of that is seemingly this mindlessly stupid one-size-fits-all solution, which is maximize people's sense of control and sense of predictability. And what you get instead is exactly what you're discussing that only works in a narrow range. Some stressor occurs that you couldn't have prevented. Do you want to feel as if you were responsible for it? And the answer is, if it's a mild to moderate stressor, enhancing your sense of control helps because all you're doing there is biasing yourself psychologically to think, whoa, just imagine how much worse that could have been. Thank God I was at the helm. On the other hand, if it's a massive stressor, all that a sense of control does is get you to focus on how much better it could have been and this happened on my watch. What you see is with the extremes of stress, denial, distraction, all of that works very well. And if you have a society instead that's constantly emphasizing that any person can pull themselves up by their bootstraps and we can all be Horatio Alger, and if you're not, you had the control, that's an incredibly corrosive source of stress. So we're talking here about the way poverty can cause stress, and I want to flip the conversation to the way stress can, po can cause poverty, the way it's a, a multi-directional feedback loop. You've written about some interesting research about the way ongoing chronic stress, a sense of overwhelm, uh, it changes even the prefrontal cortex, changes our, our ability to make certain kinds of decisions. Can, can you talk a little bit about how we operate cognitively differently under high ongoing stress loads? So it's absolutely a loop. As you say, poverty increases the stress profile, stress through indirect routes, put you more at risk for poverty. Right off the bat, though, in terms of the basic finding of the field of poverty associated with poor stress-related health, you show that's mostly driven by the poverty rather than by the stress. And the best way to show that is your level of poverty as a five-year-old predicts something about your health 20 years later. You could do a time series type studies. Okay, but getting back to the component of it where stress itself can lead to the sort of psychological profile that heads you towards poverty, what it revolves around is this part of the brain you mentioned, the frontal cortex. Totally cool part of the brain. It's like as definedly human as anything in our skull. We've got more of it than any other species. It's the newest evolved part. What does the frontal cortex do? It makes you do the harder thing when that's the right thing to do. Long-term planning, gratification, postponement, impulse control, emotional regulation, all the ways in which you're at a split in the road and there's a temptation to go for the cheap, easy payoff and instead you manage to do the right thing. That's your frontal cortex. And the critical piece of that whole story is stress. Sustained stress, relatively short-term stress, everything in between, stress impairs the function of your prefrontal cortex, and you get worse at doing the right thing when that's the harder thing to do. 
Now, you can show this experimentally, and you do a classic thing that like behavioral economists do, which is show that people have this really distortive cognitive tendency of time budget discounting, which is this whole phenomenon, temporal discounting. Okay, how much is this reward worth to you right now? A lot. How much is it worth to you if you have to wait a day for it? How about if you have to wait for a week for it, a month, etc.? And what you see is we temporally discount. Rewards become a lot less rewarding to us, a really steep decline when you got to wait for it. Okay, so this is universal among all sorts of smart species. And what you see is in us, stress makes us steeper discounters. You become more focused on the present. In experimental settings, stress or stress hormones, and people are more willing to borrow in the present against the future. People become more risk-taking, things of that sort. And what that is due to are the effects of stress on the prefrontal cortex. So you can show that in, you know, sit people in a room and stress them, stress them by making them subtract numbers quickly or some sort of experimental stressor. And people now do steeper temporal discounting and stick them in a brain scanner and it correlates with their frontal cortex being less active. Where things really get problematic chronically is in addition to one hour of stress making your frontal cortex a little bit sluggish, chronic stress will actually cause atrophy of your frontal cortex. Neurons in there shrivel up, and you now have a frontal cortex that is going to chronically be having a harder time doing the right thing when that's the harder thing to do. As a shocking finding with this, and this has been replicated by some really excellent people in the field, take five-year-olds, take kindergartners, and by age five, your parents' socioeconomic status is a predictor of how high your stress hormone levels are going to be in your bloodstream when you're just sitting there at rest. And the higher those stress hormone levels, those are the hormones that impair function of the frontal cortex. The higher those levels, the thinner your frontal cortex is going to be. In other words, at age five, you have imprudently gone and picked the wrong family to be born into, and already your lifelong trajectory of how well you are going to do the harder thing when it's the right thing to do, etc., etc., is already being impacted by poverty. So uh, I want to add some numbers here because you discuss, I think we're talking here about the same study, the study of children in Montreal that shows that going from five by age 10, the children from the poor homes had twice the circulating glucorticoids. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. Yep. Glucocorticoids. Glucocorticoids. Uh, but, but the circulating stress markers as the highest income children. And, and that's 10-year-olds, twice as much. So what might that yeah. do to a kid's performance in school? Lots. Okay, so you're impairing function of the frontal cortex. That messes up what's called working memory, which is like remembering something for 30 seconds. That messes up executive function, which is being able to do strategic stuff with your information. And that messes up impulse control, that like defining thing that your frontal cortex does. In addition, there's another part of the brain that's near and dear to me called the hippocampus, which is central to learning and memory. And what does stress and those glucocorticoid hormones do there? They atrophy neurons there as well. And suddenly memory doesn't work as well. And 
learning and retrieval of stuff. Then, sitting next to the hippocampus is a part of the brain called the amygdala. And what the amygdala is about is fear. It's the part of the brain. Hippocampus is where you learn somebody's last name. Amygdala is where you learn to be afraid of something, is where you learn to be anxious. And what does stress do there? While stress is taking the prefrontal cortex and taking the hippocampus and taking them offline, stress makes the amygdala work better than it's supposed to. What is that explaining? Neurons there become more excitable. They form new connections, all of that. People with chronic stress disorders, for example, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, their amygdalas grow larger on an actual structural level. What's that explaining? That's the connection between stress and anxiety. And anxiety sure is not good for learning if you're in a vigilant what's sneaking up behind me, literally and metaphorically, stay 24-7, that's going to disrupt learning as well. So everything about the scenario of a 10-year-old paying a neurobiological price for the randomness of that kid's socioeconomic status, that's going to impact every domain of school functioning. So when you imagine that, spiraling out through a person's life, not just them at 10, but them at 12, them at 15, them in a growing up in an area where there are gunshots that ring out in the evening, them growing up in a a single parent household where they're constantly getting evicted. What does it mean then for our ideas of of free will and personal responsibility? I mean, if the decisions we make and, and the impulses we are able to resist have so much to do with the family we're born into and the situation we're born into, and and with the chemicals that are then running through our brains, how should that shape the way we understand guilt and responsibility in a person's life? It should cause a radical rethinking about how we, we consider that whole subject. Your early environment, as we've heard, has something to do with the prefrontal cortex you're going to have as an adult and how well you do that emotional regulation. How stressful your prenatal environment was has something to do with it. How high were your mother's stress hormone levels percolating into your own circulation and getting into your fetal brain? The genes you get, their interactions with environment, all of these wind up being factors. It's relatively subtle being a five-year-old from poverty whose frontal cortex is already lagging behind a bit. Destroy somebody's frontal cortex in an accident or whatever, and you have somebody who can tell you absolutely the difference between right and wrong and what counts as appropriate behavior, and nonetheless, in a moment of emotional arousal, will absolutely do the disastrously damaging, horrific thing. They know the difference between right and wrong, yet they can't regulate their behavior. And remarkably, about 25% of the men on death row in this country have a history of concussive head trauma to their frontal cortex. When you get into that realm, you know, this guy has no frontal cortex, he was destroyed in a horrible accident, every test you give him shows he has no emotional regulation, no wonder he's a murderer. Okay, maybe people will rethink free will and responsibility in that case and begin to think of him as a damaged biological machine rather than somebody with a rotten, evil soul. But then you got to extend it to all the much more subtle stuff and the thing that makes your frontal cortex a little more or less whatever than mine and this part of the brain and that and individual differences. And you study enough of this stuff 
And the whole notion of free will starts really seeming really suspect. So I don't know if you know this, but when I was preparing for this interview, there's a Twitter account. It doesn't seem to be operative anymore, That, but it was for a while, and it would just tweet out little epigrams that you have said. Are you kidding? <laughs> nope, not at all. It's, I think it's called Prof. Robert Sapolsky. Oh, my God. And one of them was the modern criminal justice system is incompatible with neuroscience. Is, is this area what you were talking about there? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely, that is the most flagrant example, the one that's most easy to sort of comprehend. But I think that's going to eventually sort of get into every corner of how we think about things. But the criminal justice system, basically the gold standard in American criminology for deciding somebody is so organically impaired in their brain that you can't really hold them responsible for their actions, is something that's called the McNaughton Rule. And this is if somebody is so impaired that they can't tell the difference between right and wrong. And this is basically a way of describing somebody who is sufficiently psychotic, paranoid, schizophrenic, whatever, that they're just so thought disordered, they're so out of touch with reality that, you know, you can't hold them responsible. They're hearing voices incessantly, whatever. Okay, that works in, I don't know, currently 15 states in the country, something like that will allow you to make a McNaughton defense. There's no state that allows you to take the next step, which is the realm of frontal damage and someone who does know the difference between right and wrong, but nonetheless can't regulate their behavior. Now, what is most astonishing and what makes me like give rise to sound bites like that or something is the McNaughton case was a man who in the 1840s was hearing voices that told him to try to assassinate the British prime minister. And that was the first time that the system said this guy is too damaged to be held responsible, put him in an asylum, whatever. Our gold standard of incorporating neuroscience into making sense of humans at their worst moments is relying on neuroscience that was derived from knowledge in 1840. We haven't incorporated anything new since then. And this is appalling. This is always a, a tricky topic, but something I often think about in this debate is it seems to me that free will is an idea and to some degree a myth that is very valuable in our personal lives and is very destructive in our collective life. And societies seem to have a lot of trouble separating those two things out, um, possibly because it's very hard to separate those two things out. But, but it often seems to me that you want people to believe, because we do have a fair amount of control over our decisions and circumstances, certainly some, uh, but you don't want societies to believe that people have full control over their outcomes and circumstances because they don't. But holding those two somewhat contrasting ideas in our heads at the same time seems far beyond what we are able to execute uh, in politics. Politics and lots of other domains as well. First off, I don't think it's a good thing that everyone has a sense of free will. Um, I suspect people like you and me, and I'm leaping to assumptions here, um, but the guess is that you're probably as neurotic as I am. Um, sort of middle class neurotic It comes through that so with... quickly, huh? <laughs> right. So You've just, just been just interviewing for guess. like 30 minutes. <laughs> um, I mean, that's... A sense of free will is... A luxury for people who are basically doing okay and whose problems are like really 
ultimately like neurotic naval contemplation. Um, a sense of free will, ooh, I am the captain of my fate, is not great for somebody who grew up in an inner city and poverty is surrounded by violence, etc., etc. So even on the individual level, it's not always such a hot idea to foster somebody's sense of free will. Nonetheless, as a large dichotomy, it would be in a good direction if all of us thought of ourselves as having free will and thus responsible for our behaviors and thought of everybody else as lacking free will. So you have to find the means to understand them and forgive them and deal with restitution rather than retribution kind of thing. And that one's really hard to do. That one's really hard because when people do damaging, awful things, it's awful. And one of our responses to awfulness in a setting like that is a desire to punish, a desire to revenge. When we are punishing somebody, the reward parts of our brain using this neurotransmitter dopamine are going like crazy. It is a very hard thing to unwire the notion that criminal behavior, abnormally damaging criminal behavior, comes from abnormally damaged brains. It's, in a sense, a truism. Right. It would, seem, it, it would seem obvious, and yet to absorb that into our understanding of society would upend so much of what we believe about punishment, so much of what we want to believe about the rightness of punishment and the deterrent effect of punishment, that there is a radicalism to it that you can't seem to convince people of. One of the set of studies that you relay in your book that I do think is pretty helpful here is the work on learned helplessness. You, you, you write that mm. any of us can be provoked into at least transient cases of learned helplessness with surprising ease. Can you talk a bit about that research? Because I, I, I think it, in a small way, people will recognize it in themselves, but in a big way, it, it, it helps make some of these points a lot clearer. Yep. You train an organism, a lab rat, a monkey, a human, whatever, into some sort of conditioned association, some avoidance task. Okay, when this light comes on and you're suddenly from experience anticipating a shock, so your heart is racing, if you press this lever 10 times quickly, you'll avoid the shock. Great. You learn how to do that. You're on top of it. You've got an inner locus of control. Life is terrific, etc. Then they change the rules on you, which is you get the signal and you press the lever 10 times and you get the shock. And you press the lever 10 more times, and you still get a shock. And you decided you better press the lever 25 times, and you better press the lever 25 times while reciting the national anthem or wearing your lucky socks, and you get into this whole array of anxious attempts at coping. And that's what anxiety is all about. You are mobilizing a whole bunch of often mutually contradictory coping attempts when what used to work doesn't work anymore. One of the things that brains habitually do at that point is rather than when seeing, oh, when I do X, that doesn't work anymore, maybe I should try Y, what we do during stress is instead fall into habitual pathways. I know the solution is to do X 10 times more and 10 times more ardently and we get stuck in ruts in that way. Okay, so that's sort of the anxious phase. But keep doing that long enough, and then you get a transition to where you give up. You don't bother anymore. And you sit there in the middle of the floor getting the shocks over and over, and that's the transition from an anxiety disorder to a depressive disorder. 
depression is learned helplessness. And if you're sufficiently learned helpless, even when things have gone back to pressing the lever and it working, you still can't recognize that anymore. It's still not enough to make you feel better. It's still you rationalizing why this can't really be the case and why they're going to take it away from you again and why you don't deserve it and why you're a fraud and everyone's going to find out. And there's this transition early in the phase of things no longer working. We anxiously scramble, usually in a way resembling a chicken with its head cut off, trying to cope when we transition into that stage of there's nothing I can do now, ever, I'm helpless, I'm hopeless, learned helplessness, that's what depression is about. And an awful lot of what we do to the have-nots in our society is train them in learned helplessness. You have a study that was very vivid on this. Can you talk a bit about the the research uh, you discuss in the book where some psychologists took inner-city school kids who had very severe reading problems and then taught them to read Chinese? Okay, so... If you're learned helpless because you keep getting an electric shock, that's something like a lab rat can understand and identify with. If you're learned helpless because society tells you you're not smart, you're not motivated, that's a much more psychological version of learned helplessness. And that, of course, is the version that we're doing much more often in our sort of human westernized world. So if you can bypass that, you could undo some of the learned helplessness. And this was this remarkable study. Took these inner city kids, I can't remember what age, but they were already years behind the normal reading level. They had already learned they're not smart, they're not good at school, you don't want to be good at school because you're going to seem dorky, whatever. They're already on that path. And you teach them instead this abstract thing. Okay, here these two squiggles on the board here mean this word. And everybody memorizes it. Okay, and then this other squiggle means this other word. And this other squiggle, and never are you using the words language or words or anything like that describing what you're putting up on the board. And what they found was after a certain number of days doing this, these kids were learning Mandarin Chinese at the same rate as like suburban school kids. What was the difference? They weren't tapping into those conditioned elements of learned helplessness. Ooh, I'm going to teach you to read in another language. Read in another language. I'm lousy at my own because I'm not smart. I'm disorganized. I'm lazy, whatever. Bypass that entirely. And you just did an end around around these kids' learned helplessness. So what I take from this research is I think a pretty good working definition of poverty would be an endless series of problems that don't have any good solution. I mean, in, in our society, in a capitalist society right now, if you do not have enough money, what you have is an endless series of problems that don't have an actual answer. Where to live, how to make sure your kids can get to school on time, how to make sure you can get to your work on time. And if you put somebody in a condition where they're forever facing problems that no matter how hard they try, they can't really solve. They can, at best, get some traction on them for, for a little while. And, I, and this is not here to take away from the remarkable cases of people overcoming all of this and completely changing their circumstance. It happens, but for most of us, it would be pretty hard. If you put people in that condition over and over and over again, then what this research seems to say is that it will, over time, just weaken their ability and their confidence to solve problems altogether. That 
one of the effects of poverty would be it weakens the capacities that you need to get you out of poverty. Exactly. You can readily get caught in a chicken and egg scenario with that when you're looking at someone who's been poor for their half-century life and has been making bad decisions for half-century of their life. Experimental studies show the same thing in settings that will show you the causality. Take some subjects and have them play some game, some status game, and manipulate things in terms of the rewards and the outcomes so they come out the other end either feeling like they are high status or low status as a result of this stupid experimental arbitrary game. And what you see is immediately afterward, being made to feel poor, low status in this economic game, you do steeper temporal discounting. You're more likely to borrow in the present against the future. You're more likely to make exactly those sorts of errors that reflect reflect the frontal cortex not really doing its job very well. Another version of this in a study, this one I found very charming because they stopped random people in a shopping mall, I think in New Jersey, and you cause people to have economic anxiety. You describe to them, what if your car breaks down and it turns out it's going to be a $75 repair versus what if your car breaks down and it's going to be a $3,000 repair? What's the latter doing tapping into every bit of economic anxiety that you've got lurking there? And what they show is you do that to wealthy people and whether it's a $75 repair or a $5,000 one, whatever, has no real effect on cognition. Do it to poor people, $75 repair, not a big effect. Do the massively expensive repair that's got all those alarms going off of, I got no control, no predictability, no outlets, and I'm just in trouble 24-7. Do that and people's cognitive skills suddenly plummet. Memory goes down the tubes. Temporal discounting gets worse. In other words, even a short-term artificial sense of being low SES or even a short-term reminder of the bad consequences of your ongoing low SES is enough to wreak havoc with cognition and set you up for, as you said, exactly the sort of brain that's going to be really unprepared to try to get you out of that low status situation. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So I can imagine, if you're listening to this, it can all sound a bit abstract. But one reason I'm interested in it is it relates very directly to one of the core questions, conflicts in, in politics right now, which is... There is a very large and very, very strong movement in this country to make it much harder for people to access social services, to make them fill out more paperwork. You know, if they're going to get food stamps, they have to come in and take a drug test every week. If they're going to get Medicaid, they have to have work requirements to, to make things difficult. Um, and there's, you know, to, to give it, I guess, its credit, a theory behind it. You know, Paul Ryan talks about you can't let the government be a hammock. You know, you, you, you need people. You need people to really want to and need to work for it because you need to teach them 
or incentivize them to work for it, because how else are they going to get out of poverty? And it seems to me that a lot of this research suggests that making the lives of people who are already in poverty and already are um, overstressed and under a lot of pressure harder is not going to make them more capable of getting out of poverty. It's going to directly harm the cognitive capabilities that make it possible for them to get out of poverty, that you you want to lower the volume on all of these stressors and dangers in life in order to give people more of the energy to do something which is incredibly, incredibly hard, which is change the entirety of their life circumstance. Exactly. And the underlying biology is exactly the stuff we've been talking about. Poverty makes the future into a very nebulous abstract concept because the present is so much more dominating than it is for everyone else. And the notion that, you know, Paul Ryan-esque type solutions for poverty, you got to get people not getting into this dependency of just having stuff done for them or whatever, and you got to get them to do the hard work to get out of poverty. Just being poor is incredibly hard work if you're trying to feed your kids or figure out how you're going to pay the rent at the end of the month. It's an incredible cognitively depleting source of stress to constantly be worried and constantly wonder how you and your loved ones are going to make ends meet. The notion that people are sitting on their rear ends, they're wallowing in sort of societal, you know, opioids of, of support is nonsense. Being poor and trying to function with that is one of the hardest jobs we've got out there. You know, I, I think about this in a small way in my own life. I was, um, I did, a, I was very bad in school uh, when I was growing up. And I'm, I think a big reason for it was that I'm very bad at just listening to somebody lecture. I just like have an auditory processing thing. I only understood later in life. But I was also very bad socially. I didn't have many friends. I got bullied a lot. And at some point, like I can, I can look back on my life and, and see this now. I just kind of gave up. Like I just stopped. Um, I just was not trying that hard in school and did not really know what to do socially. And, you know, I went from not doing well to really, really, really not doing well, to failing things, to, to really being on the outskirts. And then at some point, you know, I left and I was in a new context, which was college, and I didn't really have to listen to people in class. And I could just write essays. And the social situation just clicked a lot better with who I was. And I got better at everything all at once because I developed this sense of capability and, and kind of competence. And this idea that um, we are empowered by things being harder and having to overcome them, it just has never seemed true for me. I, I, do think, I do think people get into rhythms where they're empowered by overcoming things, but it has to be, you know, it, it has to be a life sequence that they can actually manage. If you put people in a sequence where they can't, um, you know, and you get into a rhythm of feeling incompetent and feeling like you're not any good at it, that just builds on itself too. And I think this is a real mistake that people who are really effective in life or have had very a feeling of real efficacy in life uh, make when they're sort of trying to do policy by introspection, which is they see themselves as having overcome so much and they assume that like what they need to do is give other people the opportunity to be the same. And they don't really have a sense that if they were in a situation where they couldn't overcome as much, where it just wasn't there for them, that they would just start failing that you know that we are that we can be put into context that break our ability to generate that sort of forward energy um i think it's a real i think it's a real mistake that 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 afflicts powerful people 
Yeah, there's a very self-satisfied myopia that comes in at that point that makes one very, very open to the uh, myth that it was all your own doing and you're just self-made. It's all luck. It's all the luck of biology that impacts us. I mean, for example, the relationship between poverty, kids who are from low SES background already have markers of one of the bad health outcomes, which is an overactive uh, inflammatory system, and that's bad for a whole bunch of reasons. Oh, but not all poor kids. Whoa, who are the exceptions? Are they the ones who have like memorized the the American dream edict of they can pull themselves up by their? What's the predictor of which kids do better with that? They have a loving mother at home who's not so exhausted after working three jobs that she can actually like spend time with them. Oh, that sure is an outcome of their own like doing to get themselves the luck of having a mother who could do that. You know, just all of these variables explaining the rare subset of people who get out the other end of it, the majority who don't, are predicated on a notion of self-determination that, that simply isn't there. A sense of efficacy is great if it's a reasonable one. Telling people that everybody could be rich, any of you could be rich, any of you could be president, whatever, is just setting people up for my own damn fault that it didn't work out that way. Something more reasonable, like everybody, maybe with someone who understands the system or who is a native language speaker taking them by the hand, everybody can open up a savings account at a bank and be more prudent with their money. That one's more manageable. That one's more plausible. But societal myths about, you know, infinite mobility is all it does is make victims feel like they're responsible for what happened. So I want to talk about society and hierarchy stress from a different perspective now, which is we, we've talked here about the normal perspective on it, which is that the lower you are in a hierarchy, all else being equal, the more stress you're going to feel. But you write in the book about times when when hierarchies become unstable, when, you know, in, in, in primate society, a key individual has died or someone influential has transferred groups. And then you get all these animals changing conditions left and right. And under those conditions, you get typically dominant individuals feeling incredibly stressed. You get a lot of different players feeling incredibly stressed. I was reading that and I was thinking that that seems to describe our society right now pretty well, that we're in this period where traditionally dominant groups no longer feel dominant, where nobody new has arisen to actually be dominant, where the underlying hierarchy of American society is under flux. And so you see this kind of incredible stress and defensiveness among groups that maybe have not always seen that or have not always felt that. I'm curious if you think that that is a, a lesson or a perspective that can be laddered up to society in that way, if that sounds plausible to you. Absolutely. And the whole notion that in societies where the have-nots are chronically stressed, um, during periods of major instability, it's now those on top at the center of all the instability who tend to show the transient worse stress profiles, you know, makes perfect sense. If you're in czarist Russia in 1916, who's doing worse that some poor peasant out there in the boondocks who's got, you know, tuberculosis or rickets or bed bugs or who knows what, um, and 
there at the bottom of the totem pole. If you're looking at Tsarist Russia in 1918, who's doing worse? The Tsar and his family being taken out and getting shot. I mean, if there's a revolution going on, you don't want to be sitting inside the palace while people are rioting at the gates. What I think we see is during periods of stark instability, the people who are in the middle of the battle for it are transiently the ones who are the you know, maybe maybe at risk for the stress-related disease of being shot by a firing squad. Um, but once it settles, it goes back to the usual hierarchical stuff. I think what you're alluding to here is sort of this very important shift going on in this country, which is the folks who were traditionally on top, traditionally on top for centuries worth of white privilege and male patriarchal privilege and all those things that we know about um, have spent recent decades realizing they're not really where the culture is anymore or their level of expertise and education is not really where the cutting edge is anymore. Our whole world of poor working class, poorly educated white Americans who are showing something that is unheard of in the Western world, which is their life expectancies are getting shorter because they're sitting there drinking themselves to death at earlier ages or suicide or any of the other things or opioid addictions. And it is unprecedented for, you know, a population in a westernized country to be having their life expectancy shrinking under these conditions. And what we're seeing are the health consequences of discovering that your formal, formally sort of high status cultural niche has disappeared and you've become irrelevant to what the contemporary world is about. And yes, you're right. That's exactly what I'm alluding to. And to some of what we've been talking about here, you know, the way in which that kind of stress might change long-term decision-making, the way it might make you feel that, you know, you, you have to focus on like what you can do right now. When I look at our politics right now, when I look at who was chosen to be president in the last election, but also just when I look at some of the kinds of conflicts we see and the way that they seem to have a time horizon of right this second. Like if we if we don't win the fight right now, there will be no fight to worry about in the future. That it, it seems to bear some of those same hallmarks to me, that there isn't much of a long-term view because... Maybe a long-term view is something that comes out of a place of stability. And right now, when everyone feels that there is instability and the question of who ends with dominance in the hierarchy is completely unsettled, that sense of a long-term view, that sense of running politics for 30 years from now, for 50 years from now, as well as for the moment, just recedes. And it becomes about you know whatever can win you tomorrow, no matter what it is, no matter what cost it carries. Yeah, and I mean, at best... Politics is an incredibly short-sighted system that's all about temporal discounting. Yeah, I think absolutely it's at an extreme right now. You know, there's something I'm going to have in a couple weeks, a political scientist named Frances Lee on the show, and she's does wonderful, wonderful work. She's at the University of Maryland. But she has this new book called Unstable Majorities. And it, I, <laughs> I want to run something in it by you because I think it's interesting. What she shows in the book is that the last 20, 30 years in American politics is quite unusual, that in basically every other era in American politics, what you have is extended periods of one-party control. 
the Republican Party is dominant for a long period of time. The Democratic Party is dominant for a long period of time. But over the past, you know, again, 20, 30 years, we see power changing hands between the parties more often than ever before. We see thinner margins than ever before. I mean, it used to be normal that you would have landslide presidential elections like Reagan in, say, um, 84. Now you have these incredibly razor thin elections in the last um, since 2000. You've had two of five presidential elections, won by the narrow loser in the popular vote. And that that feeling of everybody either has just lost power and can get it back or has just gotten power and can keep it. Her theory is that a lot of why we see the kind of political warfare we're seeing right now is like the narrow knife's edge of the competition, which is actually an unusual thing in American society is not how our politics has traditionally operated. And I'm curious from the from the neuroscientist perspective, if that sounds like plausible political science. Um, That makes perfect sense. And I think what you've got is, you know, each side is more polarized. Each side has the ability, thanks to like the internet, of just being in an echo chamber of only hearing sort of their side of it. Each side, as a result, gets less capable of perspective taking, all of that. Um, and I say that as somebody way to the left of your like basic Democrat. But nonetheless, that's something that occurs on both sides. Um, you have this additional issue, which is... Like a lot of political scientists have tried to make sense of the, you know, Samuel Huntington clash of cultures, the the Islamic world and its conflict with the Western world and the implicit hostility and inability to have shared values. And do we have decades of conflict ahead? And a lot of people focusing on sort of one of the roots of anger, of simmering resentment in the Muslim world is the relative position of subordination in the world order now. And the fact that a thousand years ago, like all the planet was about, you know, the most cool, inventive, you know, dominant things were the Ottoman Empire, the Moors, the the. Byzantine splendor, all of that, that they ruled the world while traditional Europeans were in caves kind of thing. And people who used to be in a much better position and now are in anything but, that's a very, very simmering sort of potent situation to be in. But you see that a lot, right? I mean, Russia, China, those are both national narratives that have very powerful hold there too. Absolutely. And I think that's a way of stating the narrative we have now at home, which is the whole class of people who used to be the given as the Norman Rockwell dominant culture in this country are not so much looking back nostalgically at a thousand years ago, but they're sure looking back to 1950 or whatever. I think that's the exact same psychology going on. It is a very scary mindset to think that things used to be a whole lot better and something really crummy and unfair was done by some them that has brought about the present state instead. You have in your book, um, I I wish I had brought this in my notes because I thought it was so fascinating, but I'll I'll, I'll do it from memory here. Uh, 
This has implications for how we act. Trying to th- if you if you take this model of the world, it has implications for how we should operate in the world. You you talk in the book about primate societies where you'll see a particular a member of of the group just getting the shit kicked out of them all of the time. Just absolutely a huge target for harassment. You know, anytime they get you know a nice bush or a banana or a mate, that everybody's just coming and, and killing them over it. And that you often find it's somebody who was dominant and was particularly uh, brutal when they were dominant, now being dominated by the people who are younger and stronger and more powerful. And that by contrast, you have players in primate society who were kinder when they were on top um, and, you know, spent more time with others and grooming and whatever. And that they seem to manage that transition better. And I do wonder a little bit when we think about this as a as a societal level question, how much the way we act towards the world at a time when we're on top, how much of the way we see it is zero sum and that we have to show we're always the winner, how much it sets us up for a much more brutal form of competition into the future. Absolutely. And if your plan is to prefer to be feared than loved or to dominate unilaterally rather than be cooperative and reciprocal or whatever, you're absolutely, you're going to build up centuries of resentment. Um, You're going to build up centuries of consequences. Absolutely. One of the other pieces in our our politics that I was thinking about a little bit reading your book, and I actually don't even want to say in our politics, I think I just want to say in our social life here, is that your book talks a lot about social stress. Um, and in particular, relative hierarchical stress, uh, the feeling of being a feeling of going up or going down, of being on top or of being on bottom, that does a lot to us. We are very attuned to it. But in theory, it was probably for the most part, things are pretty stable and those movements happen pretty slowly. And I wonder about the ways in which we're on these social platforms now where we're constantly getting all of this feedback. You know, how many likes did something get or did everybody gang up on me or that joke I put out about politics or about culture? Actually, everybody thought I had said something, you know, terrible and now they're all ganging up on me. I I wonder how much the stress that people are experientially feeling because we do see, particularly among young people, very sharp rises in anxiety, somewhat rises in depression. I wonder how much the intense speeding up and intense instability of digital social hierarchies, how much we're just not well built for that. And it just creates a constant feeling of anxiety in people. Um, I think that's absolutely the case. Either anxiety and or outrage and or desire for revenge and or despair and or all the above, because what that world of internet, etc., it's increasing the volume. It's bringing in a distortive sense of there constantly being a crisis and one that is unprecedented and is occurring right now and has to be dealt with in this moment. And where all you hear are voices that agree with you that are shouting louder and louder. And I think that absolutely leads to that. This is something that you get at towards the end of the book, but but I did want to talk about it here. Um, because as I said, you know, I picked up the book because I struggle with a lot of anxiety. Like I wake up and I feel it, you know, I feel that, that kind of nervous tension. And I think a lot of people do. I think when I look at the data on this, you know, it's, it's in a lot of folks. Your book talks about some of the 
straightforward remedies or, or things that might help with anxiety, exercise, meditation, etc. But if you wanted to try to live or think about your life in a way that better accords with what anxiety is in human beings, I'm curious what advice you have for people philosophically. Um, this is not a world built to calm anxiety. It's a world built to to activate it, to make us aware that we could always be doing better, that we could always be doing more, that there are always people who don't like us. You know, going living in a world that is not well designed for the actual pathways of anxiety we have, I'm curious, you know, away from sort of life hacking, how you think people should think about themselves in relation to it? Well, virtually anything I could say here is going to be some sort of fatuous soundbite. Um, in terms of sort of my expertise and what I've spent years studying in my lab, I am so much better at understanding why not controlling stress does in your brain and body than understanding how to avoid the whole thing. But nonetheless, from what people know about it is, again, within certain parameters, more of a sense of control, predictability, outlets, all of those. Um, one thing that's clear is if you got a choice among all of those sort of classic building blocks of stress management, um, probably the best one you can go for is get yourself social support. Social support, which is not meeting somebody on Tinder, social support, the sort of support you get from a slowly emerging, you know, relationship, you know, nothing does this in when it turns out that someone who we thought we were close to actually just turned out to be a not very reliable acquaintance. Um, so social support is hugely important. Um, constantly go through this like virtually useless <laughs> sort of soundbite of saying, what am I so frazzled about right now, right now in this moment? Would this make any sense whatsoever to a hippo? Would this make any sense to any other mammal out there who secretes stress hormones because there's a physical crisis right now? No. Everything that I'm doing right now is in my head, is in my head. That could work to some extent. If in your head is, I've got to do this abstract thing of paying rent tomorrow and I don't have the money for it, no degree of like hippoology is going to solve you of that because there's a reality. But again, if you've got the privilege of middle or upper class neurotic sources of psychological stress, remembering that they would make no sense to any other animal out there is helpful. I would say that in a larger sense, and particularly for the sort of like educated, insightful folks who would be interested in something like this, and is a commonality, as you say, is a lot of ambition work really hard at the beginning to get a clear sense of just what you're willing to give up for that ambition and if it's going to seem worth it. And that's a hard one, but sort of in my world of dealing with incredibly gifted, you know, Stanford students with trajectories of success ahead of them and the sky's the limit and all of that, just getting a sense of what you're willing to give up and what it's going to cost for what version of a good outcome and a successful life, just really think that through beforehand. And then let me ask the same question from the social policy perspective. Uh, I'm not here, I'm not going to ask you, you know, which exact policies you, you would put into place, but we've had this whole conversation about poverty and about what it does to the brain um, and what uh, the brain does to it. And if you were thinking about how to build social policy, design social policy, 
so that we were creating the conditions for people to better their lives more easily, creating the conditions for people to have like the mental energy to better their lives more easily. What are the principles you would be thinking about in design of programs? What are what are the kinds of things you would be trying to achieve, whatever the programs were that might achieve them? When looking at, I think, what really helps societies function better, it's tapping into this concept that sociologists love, this guy Robert Putnam at Harvard who really pioneered it, of social capital. Just like fiscal capital, what your social resources are, what your society has to sort of deal with social problems. There's a gazillion ways to think about and measure social capital, but on a certain level, it boils down to sort of two questions. On the average, do people in society feel like they can trust each other? And on the average, do people in society feel like they have efficacy if they are heard, if collective efforts actually accomplish something? And those two things, and you could measure that with like idiotically simple like questionnaire, on the average, can you trust people or not? Yes or no? How many groups do you belong to? How many organizations? Starting with something that's simple, those measures of social capital are hugely predictive of how well things work in society. And in some ways, the punchline to the whole poverty, poor health story is exactly that. We saw that it's not just being poor, it's feeling poor, it's feeling poor, surrounded by wealth, income inequality. And in some ways, the most startling finding in that field is not just when income inequality goes up, the health of the poor really gets worse. Everybody's health gets worse, including the wealthy. From Jeff Bezos on down, more inequality in society predicts poorer health. And what the studies show is the key mediator of that is the more inequality there is in a society, the less social capital there is. How can you trust people when it's a much steeper ladder that you can fall off of? How can you trust people when, by definition, more inequality means there's less equality, there's less people who are potential peers to have symmetrical relationships with instead of hierarchical ones, and the steeper <laughs> the steeper the curve, um, the less sense of efficacy people have, the less you can think that any sort of collective efforts, your union, your tenants organization, your bowling club, your knitting club, whatever is going to actually accomplish something. When inequality increases, social capital goes down, everybody suffers for it, suffers in their health. But people like Wilkinson have done wonderful studies showing that you suffer in terms of rates of crime, homicide, teen pregnancy, obesity rates, everything. A society that's unequal is a society where people don't trust each other and where people feel like they have no control over things. And those are predictors of whether you're a biologist or a sociologist or a criminologist, it all of those predict it's a much lousier place to live in. So probably really the key thing to focus on with that is the issue of inequality. I think that's a great answer. Um, well, I know I've taken up quite a bit of your time here. So let me ask you the question that we always used to end the podcast, which is, what are three books you've read over the years that you would recommend to the audience that have influenced you? Oh, three books. Um, first one was 
21 Balloons, which I read when I was about eight and was like the most marvelous book I've ever read in my life and go back to over and over and over about an imaginary utopian society on the island of Krakatoa that got destroyed when the volcano there erupted. Um, but that one's probably of limited sort of relevance here. Um, another book, probably the book that has most influenced my thinking since graduating college, it's the only book in a long, long time where when I got to the last page, I immediately went to the first again and reread it, is a book called Chaos by James Glick, which is focusing in on this whole domain of how complex systems, a complex system, a cell made up of a gazillion molecules, a brain made up of a gazillion neurons, a society made up of a gazillion people, an ecosystem made up of a gazillion influencing factors and the diversity there, how very complex systems work and don't work, and it's like revelatory sort of the world it opens up for you. So that's influenced my thinking tremendously. Um, I guess the third book, the one that's like influenced my professional thinking the most is by this physician anthropologist, Mel Connor, Melvin Connor with a K, um, Emory University, book called The Tangled Wing, Biological Constraints on the Human Spirit. And it's basically an exploration of the biology of our potentials and vulnerabilities and propensities and biology, gene environment interactions. And it's a wonderfully scientific book at the same time as being wonderfully poetic. It's the most beautiful book ever written on the subject, trying to make sense of us as biological organisms going about being wonderful to each other or crummy to each other. So that book has been enormously influential for my thinking. Robert Sapolsky, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. This has been a pleasure. Thank you to Dr. Sapolsky for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. Uh, thank you to Topher Ruth at UC Berkeley, to my engineer Jeffrey Geld at Vox Media. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.